This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, but today call me Ishmael because today marks the first publication of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And to celebrate, we've got a whale of an episode for you today author and host of Her Dinero Matters, Jen Hemphill. Plus, from Afford Anything, Paula Pant. But that's not all. Today, we're swapping out our Friday FinTech for some of Friday's health tech. We welcome back from MetPro, Angelo Poli. And finally, our roundtable will answer your questions on our Magnify Money segment. And now, a guy who majored in English but never read Moby Dick... Joe Salcihai. That is painfully true. And to have, I don't know, this late in the game, to have that held over my head again by Doug, kind of not good. But we do have a whale of a show for you today. And joining us from, I'm, I'm trying to find other whale analogies. Swimming up? <laughs> the whale of podcasting. See, that just doesn't do it. In Las Vegas, it's Paula Pant. You know, I I was pretty sure that that intro was going to say, a man who majored in English yet still can't speak it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Speaks <laughs> it like it's a third language. Yes, absolutely. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. You've been to the airport recently? I have. So I uh, <laughs> just dropped off a friend at the airport and I dropped him off at Terminal 1. He was actually flying out of Frontier, which in the Las Vegas airport flies out of Terminal 3. And he didn't have any bags. 
And so I told him, I was like, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's really easy. Just take the tram from T1 to T3. You know, super easy. You'll get there. Don't don't worry about it. So this guy doesn't realize that he can check in online or check in on his phone. He's under the impression from the 1980s, apparently, that you have to physically go to the ticketing counter to check in, even when it's a domestic flight and you don't have any bags. You don't have to go to the counter? Is that what you're trying to say? (laughs) And so instead of doing what I think most people would do, which is you go to security, you show them the boarding pass on your phone, you get through security, and then you take the the tram inside of the airport, right? Instead of doing that, he takes the outdoor airport shuttle, which takes so long. The, the amount of time that it took for him to take that outdoor shuttle plus stand at the ticket encounter, he missed his flight. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't realize I was going to have to explain this to somebody. I thought this was common knowledge. Explain the miracle of flight. And then he was going to get in this tube and he was actually <laughs> going to make it to wherever he was going. It's incredible. Right. Like, like, dude, you don't need a piece of paper with information printed on it. We have these devices. They're called phones. That is fantastic. And a woman, by the way, Paula, joining us who has a fantastic podcast that you can listen to on your phone. See how I work that around? Whoa. Yes. From uh, the Washington, D.C. area, it's our great friend, Jen Hemphill. How are you? I'm excited to be here. Well, we're so happy you're here. Uh, Have you been to the airport recently? Actually, it's been a couple months since my trip to Ireland, I guess. Oh, cool. (laughs) I might forget how to check in, maybe. Possibly. (laughs) Did you know that you can check in on your phone? I did. I did. It's, you can it, also check in on the internet. You can. Oh. The, and it, the internet on, on the, your phone, too. The internet on your phone or the yes. internet on your laptop or the internet on a tablet. That is mind-blowing. Do you think when they created that stuff, Jen, like all of this technology, that it took a lot of money? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> For those people in small businesses that need money to run their small business, Uh, We have to say thanks to Cabbage for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Go to Cabbage.com to get started. Credit line subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by. So here's a question. It says it's issued by Celtic Bank or is it Celtic Bank? Like, which one is it? You would be asking the wrong person if you ask me, Joe, because I'm the one that invents pronunciations and words. <laughs> well, people that listen like- to this show for a while know you're probably second behind me. But anyway. I like how you just gave a new pronunciation to the word pronunciation. <laughs> See what I'm saying? I, oh, I rest my case. <laughs> there, there it is. Paula, is it Celtic or Celtic? I would say Celtic. I think it's Celtic too. But then why isn't it the Boston Celtics? Oh, good point. Yeah. Mm. Member FDIC. Anyway, whichever one they are, they are member FDIC. Thanks also to Masterworks for supporting Stacky Benjamins. This has not been a Masterworks so far, but we're working on it. We got uh, a little time left in this podcast to make it a Masterwork. Masterworks is the first art investment platform that allows you to invest in the world's most valuable paintings. Visit masterworks.io to reserve your shares. We got a great show today. We got Jen Hempel from Her De Narrow Matters joining us. Paula, Jen, and I, we have a fantastic piece, so let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Normally here, we jump into 
our piece. However, this one was a little poetic. I thought it was kind of, um, it was like reading somebody's diary. And I thought it would be fun to have a good friend of mine, R.L. Graham, read this for us. So uh, for your listening pleasure, reading a piece from the Paul Jarvis blog, take it away, Mr. Graham. Do What You Love, a blog post by Paul Jarvis. If we believe that personal fulfillment is really the ultimate purpose of labor, then who do we expect to do all the other jobs that are not so existentially fulfilling? Mika Tokumsitsu. Even as someone who works for myself and makes a living off of creativity, it's not always fun and holding hands while letting the rays of sunshine wash over my face. Most days, I bust my ass designing websites that require lots of rounds of revisions with clients, and we may not see eye to eye, or publication editors asking for revisions I don't always agree with. I butt heads with people that pay me, and some days I wouldn't work if I didn't have to. I sometimes miss out on doing things I want to because I have to work, and I have it so easy because I work for myself doing something I mostly enjoy then I don't even have the right to complain. While I love doing what I do, it's still work. I still get up at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. every day and sit down and work for most of the day. I don't wait to be inspired because it's a job, and I stop when the work is finished. I'm lucky to have this life, which is afforded to me because I live in the first world and grew up middle class. I don't have to stress about how I'll pay rent, afford health care, or wonder when we'll be able to buy groceries next. I completely see the hypocrisy and classist edification of me even talking about this subject. But if everyone's job was simply to do what they love, who would collect garbage, work as a cashier, do data entry, or any other job that doesn't seem as soul-fulfilling? Those aren't even lesser jobs, either. They're just jobs. Doing what you love for a job is awesome, but not mandatory or valued above anything else. I've never understood why so many people are so concerned with only doing a job that makes them happy, as if anything else wasn't worth doing. Find a job that you don't have to worry about when you're not doing it or a job that doesn't make you miserable every single day, and you'll be far better off than a lot of folks. As I enjoy telling my wife, work is called work, and not super happy fun time. Because often, it's just tasks that need to be done. It doesn't mean your life is less meaningful just because your job lacks existential value. You aren't your job. It doesn't have to define you unless you let it. Plus, you can always do what you love in your spare time. I do. Doing what you love doesn't have to mean a job. It can be a hobby, a passion, or even simply spending time with the people that you love the most. Thanks again to my friend R.L. Graham for reading that. I like that. That's a nice change of pace. Jen, let's start with you. You know, we talk a lot in our in this business of money about finding the intersection of of money and passion, chasing your passion. Are you kind of like Paul here, Paul Jarvis, thinking that you really don't have to? I saw where he was coming from. When I was reading this article, I at the beginning I'm like I knew, I read the quote 
And then I started reading and I was like, is this going to be a little negative? Where is this taking me? I see what his point is. But I also think that uh, because he mentions that you don't have to doing what you love doesn't mean equate doesn't equate to a job. I also think that you need to strive to get to do something that pays you right. Strive to do something that you love and pays um, pays you doing what you love. Paula, then to the point of the quote at the top, then who takes your garbage out? Uh, Yeah, I think that the, you know, the way that I interpreted that is being able to pursue a passion or, or at least a, a curiosity or something that you find very motivating is a luxury, you know, and some people have the luxury of choosing a career while others are trying to make ends meet. And so when we throw around a lot of advice about like follow your passion or do what you love, there's maybe a bit of privilege in that. But a luxury, though, makes it sound like we should all strive for this job that we're absolutely going to love. And as as Paul kind of, I think, eloquently here says, that kind of puts some judgment into it if you don't have that job. Well, I think that for I mean, for many people, I think the differentiating factor is is what you're doing right now a stepping stone that you're doing while you're trying to get to a career that uh, that you'd like to pursue? Or have you settled? Because it's one thing to take on a job that's a stepping stone. We've all had jobs that we've disliked, that we've done in order to get through school, to get through college, to make some side hustle income, to make ends meet. Like We've all had those jobs that were truly just a paycheck, but there was always a bigger vision at the end, even if that vision was going to come 10 or 15 years down the road. But it seems to me, though, though, Jen, if you believe what Paul is saying is correct, that Paul's making a, a little bit different statement that he he doesn't love his job, but he doesn't hate his job. I don't get this feeling that he's I, almost like a separation of church and state we talk about, right? He's got his <laughs> job and he's got his love and the two don't have to meet. Right. And what I thought he was saying, and I see, and yes, I agree with you, Joe. What I thought he was saying was that he loves parts of his job, but there's aspects of his job that he doesn't like when him and his clients aren't aligned with the direction they're going in those type of things. And so there's different aspects that maybe well, granted with what he does, some of those things he can't outsource, but I think it's just a certain aspects of his job that he doesn't love. What's your goal then, Jen, if you work with yourself to get rid of those aspects or like Paul kind of says here, just live through them? If you can, you know, outsource them. Absolutely. There's some things (laughs) that you can't outsource that you have to do, but if you can, absolutely. Paula, you wrote a lot when you were in Japan about how you were working and on vacation kind of at the same time and Mm -hmm. building more of a machine around afford anything. Uh, Attempting to. Well, that's what I was going to ask is that that kind of sounds like Paul's stuff when he says near the end, I love this, as I enjoy telling my wife work is called work and not super happy fun time. It didn't sound like your entire trip to to Japan was super happy fun time. There was certainly a what felt at times to be a crushing workload that followed me in Japan. What I noticed is that there are the aspects of work that feel like where in which I feel like I'm just a hamster running in circles in a wheel. 
the analogy that I often use is playing whack-a-mole. When you get so many emails and messages and they're coming at you from all these different places, there's email and then there's email at your other account and then there's Instagram direct messages and then there's Facebook and there's just, there's so many and they're coming from everywhere. And somehow a bunch of people have your number and then they're texting you. And so the, at the times when I'm playing whack-a-mole and just like trying to respond to messages and the new ones keep popping up, I feel like I'm Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the mountain. Those are not the enjoyable times. But if I'm actually making meaningful progress, if I'm in some meaningful way driving the company forward, that's actually quite satisfying. And so that kind of relates to what Paul said at the beginning of his article, where he said there are aspects of his job that he that he just has to do. And then there are other aspects that you find satisfying, like not nothing is going to be 100 percent satisfying all of the time. But if the benefits outweigh the costs or if the meaning outweighs the mundane, then it's a fit. Speaking of mundane, Jen, I want to take this in a different direction, which is uh, something that we don't think about a lot here when we talk about passion in a job, which is for those people that aren't working like the three of us do in a job where it kind of, frankly, whether you want it to or not, follows you 24-7. It followed Paula to Japan, right? It might have followed mm-hmm. you to some degree, I would imagine, to Ireland. It follows you wherever you go. I mean, I, I can't think of a vacation that I've had with my family where I didn't work for an hour a day. You know, and I'm trying to to on on some aspects get rid of that, but but for people that aren't in love with their job, I kind of like what Paul says here. They have the huge advantage of when they leave it, then they can absolutely leave it. I mean, that is a big time upside about yes. having a job you don't care about. Absolutely, I tell my husband like all the time. He's in the military, and granted. It is a nine to five job, but it isn't because in the military is about taking care of people and taking care of people can be a 24 hour job. But in with what we do, like you said, we take it everywhere. So I always say to him, it's nice to be able to come home and not have to focus on work. And sometimes he does take work home, but in general, he's able to like come home and disconnect and not have to necessarily think about uh, work and where us, <laughs> we may work from home, right? And not be able to disconnect. Yeah. Do you ever worry, Paula, that you can't turn it off? Yeah, all the time. And I used to think that that was a matter of setting up my environment. Like I used to think that that was a matter of, all right, have a designated home office, do everything there, blah, blah, blah. But what I realized is that largely it's inside of my mind. If my mind is so preoccupied with what's happening at work that I I can't turn those thoughts off, then no matter what I do, even if I shut the door to the home office or you know sequester work to a certain physical environment or force myself to go you know spend a day hiking or whatever, like no matter what those external factors are, the thing that actually needs to be solved is that my mind needs to be quieted from work think for a while. There's a very tired argument on the internet that I want to go into for just a second. (laughs) And the tired argument is this idea that there are people in the fire community, are they really retired because they're working so much? And I really don't care about that piece, frankly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's boring. That's old. That's, that's whatever, but not, not being financially retired is one thing, not being able to mentally let it go and go into this whole different aspect of your life. How often do you think, Paula, that financial independence is kind of over 
discussed versus this idea of having mental independence? Mm. I mean, so mental and emotional, like psychological independence of your work, it's an interesting concept because, well, partially your relationship with that is going to depend on if you are an employee at a mid-sized to large company where you feel a little bit like a cog in the machine, or if you are the owner of the company, or maybe work for a very small company where you know that the contribution that you make has a very large impact on the direct members of your team. I, I think that that plays a big role in it. I, yeah, I don't think that that's discussed enough, but perhaps because it's so hard to quantify, you know, like how do you discuss what is essentially a feeling, like the feeling of anxiety that you get when you feel as though you're letting other people down? That's partially it's boundary setting. Partially it's yeah. dealing with the aspect of yourself that's a people pleaser. Do you chase that, Jen? I think what Paula was saying, I agree. I also think it's a mind, you know, as she mentioned, emotional and mindset issue because we we have these visions of what financial independence is, but sometimes, in my opinion, we follow what other people say financial independence should be, right? Versus what would make us happy. So we follow that because other people say uh, the experts are telling you this is how it should be. And I think that gets us in a place of overwhelm and uh, or can, right? And it gets us in a place where maybe we might not feel satisfied, even though we may have reached that quote unquote financial independence. But in our mind, we we're not satisfied because we haven't reached that advice of quote unquote, what financial independence is. But does I that think, make sense? Well, yeah, it does. But I think I find people that reach financial independence and still don't act like they have independence because they're still so wrapped up into this feeling of I have to produce for the machine. Right. Or they don't want to enjoy life. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. I, just jumping in here. I, I think that work for many people is a, a source of meaning, like in terms of the way that you perceive yourself making an impact in the world. And I think particularly for people who quote unquote early retire, and they they leave their place of employment and they no longer have that as a source of meaning. And, and then the, the existential question that comes up is, in what way am I impacting the world? In what way am I making a contribution? In what way does my life have meaning? I mean, on one hand, you could maybe call that ego validation. On the other hand, you could call that a spiritual quest. Maybe it's a blend of both. Well, I'm thinking that it's funny because because you see online, as I mentioned before, uh, Paula, these these, you know, tired arguments. But then I look at people like Bill Gates as an example. Dude leaves Microsoft, clearly financially independent, does something very, very worthwhile that, you know, people might say is a bigger contribution to the world than what he did with Microsoft. Mm. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. Oftentimes the people who are motivated and ambitious and driven enough to reach financial independence are often, and I'm certainly not implying that like people who haven't reached FI are not that, but people who have reached FI often are that. And oftentimes that personality type is not content with uh, kicking back. You know, oftentimes that personality type is happiest when they are engaged in some type of action where they can see forward progress and forward momentum. So some people might channel that in a different way. Some people might channel that into training for 
a triathlon or learning a new instrument or learning a foreign language, but others will channel that into uh, a more conventional work or nonprofit related venue. Jen, when you're coaching people, do you see them chasing these professions that they love, chasing, trying to get into things they love or trying to do what, what Paul's talking about here about separate the love from their overall life goals? I see a little bit of both uh, chasing what they love, but I also see a lot of people that are just doing what they can or what they feel that they can do. That's it for right now. That's all they can do because maybe they have all this debt that they're uh, needing to get rid of. And all they see is that this is their way at this job and making this money is their way out uh, towards uh, whether to pay enough that debt or saving more. So they're afraid to take the step into maybe something else that they enjoy. So you're saying the debt's like a wall between them and seeking that thing that they really want to do. That. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I, I totally buy that. I feel, I feel like debt, Jen, is this thing that makes us need to focus on, you know, $1 opportunities instead of thousand dollar opportunities. Right. Like what's right in front of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Tough, tough stuff. Well, I definitely have to say this before we wrap wrap this up, Paula and Jen, that this has been a masterwork of a conversation. Big thanks to Masterworks. Like, how I, huh? Huh? Big thanks to Masterworks for supporting Stacky Benjamins. If you're not familiar with Masterworks, it's the first fine art investment platform that allows you to invest in the world's most valuable paintings. What I like about Masterworks is that you actually are getting in on an asset class that historically most of us have not been able to get into because of the fact that these paintings cost a ton of money. And yet, when you pull back the curtain and you look back on these masters over time, the discussion is a compelling one. You look at the standard deviation, the ups and downs of artwork versus other asset classes. That's attractive. Also, the fact that you can directly own and pick which master you own instead of some of the art funds, which, by the way, I like those too, but I really like the fact that in this case, you can pick out the exact master so you know the history of how well that master's paintings have done. Everyone from uh, Banksy to Andy Warhol, Masterworks has invested in many of the great artists that even non-art lovers like. When we look at investment classes that beat the heck out of inflation, there's a compelling discussion here. Now, artwork isn't for everybody. Obviously, you own a physical painting and you can't sell a little piece of it to get your money out. So you have to know how this asset class works. While it's very exciting and it's something that I personally like, it's not for everybody. Even if art is the most popular investment of the ultra-wealthy, and it's among the top asset classes this last year. Here's how you check it out. Masterworks is giving stackers the opportunity to bypass their huge waiting list. Head to masterworks.io and then let them know Stacking Benjamin sent you, and then you'll skip the wait list. That's masterworks.io, and then put in Stacking Benjamins to learn more about Masterworks. Uh, uh, Jen, we'll stick with you as the guest here. What's your big takeaway from this piece? I think he's challenging us to reflect on ourselves as to what we're doing currently, whether our nine to five job, if we're entrepreneurs and seeing what is 
really uh, what we're passionate about within that and what we're not and what's just kind of those mundane details that we have to take care of, but to really look at our lives and see even if it's not within our job, like he said, that he does something outside of his work that he's passionate about. So it's about finding that thing that makes you fulfilled and happy, even if it's outside of the job, even though I think that for me, even if it's outside of the job, I guess it's it's fine. But I think I would also want to incorporate it in what I'm doing and getting paid for. Mm. Paula? My big takeaway from the piece actually came towards the introduction when he talked about his own relationship with his work in that he enjoys his work, but there are mundane elements to it. There are kind of clock punching. This stuff is just the stuff that has to be done elements of a job and a career that he's built and that he enjoys. And so my big takeaway actually was that if you are in the position in which you doing the work that you think is most meaningful, you're doing the work that you think is your passion, and then you feel at a day-to-day level maybe a little bit let down or just a little like bleh about it, remember that that's because there's that expression, life is a picture, but each day is a pixel, you know, and not every pixel is going to be this brilliant color. That was my big takeaway was even in the best case scenario, you're not going to be 100% enthused all the time, and that's okay. In fact, that's to be expected. Well, you've heard this guy on our show before, and by the way, they've also been a sponsor of our show. We really wanted to have Angela Poli, who is the co-founder of MetPro, which does something called metabolic profiling on the show. OG and I and the team, we were sitting around and we're like, you know what? We want to cover health because so often we look at our work life and we look at our money, but we forget that if our health doesn't go, nothing goes. And so being healthy, think more crisply, get more done, achieve more of the results you want. That's at the base of all of this stuff that we talk about. So we wondered who was the right person to do this. And clearly, if you've heard Angelo Poli on our show before, you know that he's the guy. He is definitely the guy. So here, not as, as a guy who's been a sponsor of the show, here's a guy who we know and trust a ton, a guy who's worked with some huge names like Aaron Rodgers, as an example. The If you don't know football, he is the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. He's worked with a lot of big names, you know. Now he's here in the basement helping you. Let's say hello to Angelo Poli. And we had so much fun with him last time that we wanted more. And actually, he's been nice enough now to answer all of your questions from MetPro, our good friend Angelo Poli's back. How are you, man? I am awesome, uh, but I'm only willing to answer the questions that are easy. Don't give me no, hard questions. No, 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 no. We saved. Last time I was in the basement, <laughs> you guys grilled me. You know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't think I was going to get out with my life. Well, the good news is, is it's it's our friends in the basement, not OG and I asking the questions this time. <laughs> I know we bring the heat lamps, Angelo, but these people are super nice. By the way, for everybody listening, if uh, if you're in our basement Facebook group, you know what what I'm talking about. Uh, if you're not. 
not join us uh, because we have this closed Facebook group and Angelo's agreed to answer questions. And that's where we got the questions from. So just type in Stacking Benjamin's Basement, answer a couple of questions and we'll let you in. You can hang out. If, if you like bad dad jokes, Angelo, mixed with like financial tips, like bad dad joke, financial tip, that's that's it. I'm in. Any self-deprecation, things like that. My wife is really into that. You know, not for her, for me. Of for course. you, of it course. It's yeah. me in my place all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to we're going to take it from the top because these are all awesome questions. Jared kicks it off, Angelo, by asking for your thoughts on sustainability versus getting there quicker. And here's here's what he means. You see this, I'm sure, all the time, which mm-hmm. is a lot of people try to change everything at once and they burn out. He writes and other people try making little changes and build. One person gets there quickly. The other one sustainably goes. But I don't know if the sustainable people actually ever get there. Or the faster people get there better. You know what he's asking? What, what I th- completely get it. And he's right to ask that question because that that's exactly what happens is sometimes people, they get overly aggressive and they bite off more than they can chew and they burn out fast. And then a lot of times, especially with our company, MetPro, we hear a lot of the people who have already tried several things and their metabolism is really broken or they just haven't quite reached their goal. So doing a casual, you know, change a little bit of this, eat a little less sugar, just isn't potent enough to move the dial. Mm. So Jared, it could be either one. So here's what you have to identify is which group do you fall under? And so a lot of times it depends on where you're starting from. So somebody has the goal of, hey, I need to bring down my blood pressure and drop my cholesterol and lose 75, 80 pounds. And my lifestyle is just really not on point with where I know it needs to be. Let's start with one step at a time. Now, I would definitely encourage you to get professional advice to make sure the steps that you start with are the most relevant are going to give you the best return on investment. But then there's the other end of the spectrum. And that is, I'm not in bad shape. I'm in decent shape. I I exercise a little, I watch what I eat, but I, I just, I don't have quite the health or quite the body or physique that I really want. What do I do? Well, in that case, it takes a greater level of specificity and that's where having, you know, that strategic advice, which hopefully, you know, we'll get into a little bit today, yeah. some action steps yeah. really helps. It makes a big difference. It sounds like there's a lot of know yourself there. If you're the type of person that goes full hog into everything and burns out quickly on other stuff, you'll probably do the same thing with your eating. And well, and I'll give you a hint. You'll This will be a reoccurring theme. We baseline test every single person that we work with. Anytime I meet someone, the first thing is we baseline test because that tells us metabolically and from a habit standpoint where you're at. And so if somebody and I'm just using weight loss as an illustration, there could be any host of goals. Yeah. If somebody wants to lose weight, they may be overweight because they have a slow metabolism. And so the strategy to address that is going to look very different from someone who's overweight because they hit the drive through every night after work. Two different situations. One person we have to address with simple behaviors. The next person we need to have a fairly cohesive, complete strategy to reinvigorate their metabolism. But I will tell you this, Uh, for Jared's question here. I've been coaching now for 20 years and I am really big on actual human to human coaching. 
And I feel like I have identified the exact number of things you can change at once with excellence. You want to know what that number is? It's got to be one. One. Oh, that's it. <laughs> one thing. So, so the idea is don't change 50 things at once. Adopt one habit. Change one thing. Check it off your list. Move on to the next. Now, just as a, an example, if I start working with someone, I'm going to change one or two things right out of the gate. And within 72 hours, if they come back with a good report card, we're going to check those off the list and move on to another thing, then another thing. That's how we build that momentum. Gotcha. It reminds me of, uh, there's a book that was released recently called Atomic Habits, talking the same thing about systematically Mm -hmm. one thing, check it off. Sue writes to us, uh, she says, excellent idea, by the way, Angela, she's talking about you having you answer questions. Uh, it, oh, she, you, she says, as a fan, she says, investing in you and your family's long-term health is equally, if not more important than investing in your 401k. Similar to Jared's question, she says, what are the biggest habits for both eating and activity that would provide the biggest return? Time management, hands down. Every time I do like a lecture or a seminar or retreat or something like that, somebody will come up to me and they'll recognize me from reading some of my writings or whatever the case may be and say, Mr. Poli, how do you get the great results with your executives or CEOs or athletes or whoever you're working with? What's the magic exercise or what's the diet? And I tell them, you're asking the wrong question. I'll tell you the secret to my success. Time management. The next statement is almost universal. Yeah, I know what I should be doing. The problem is following through. Everybody knows what they should be doing, but I'll tell you what's stopping you from following through. It's speed, the ability to execute on those items quickly. And that's the difference between someone who has become an expert in the lifestyle and the profession of health, fitness, wellness in their personal life and a novice. They may both know what they quote unquote should be doing, but it feels so overwhelming for the novice versus someone who has the right strategy, the right coaching, knows how to implement it in their life simply with minimal pain and drag. So can I prepare specific meals? Which meals should I prepare for the day? If I am going to exercise, when should I exercise? What should I spend my time doing at the gym? Should I exercise at the gym or should I exercise at home? If I am going to splurge on foods, what is okay and what is devastating? All of these little nuances go into defining whether or not someone's going to be successful or not. Once somebody gains that habit and turns it into just muscle memory, they've got the speed down. That's really the key. When you say time management, do you mean then devoting the uh, like a set time to this like you would any other activity during your day? Is that what you're talking about? I do, but I'd, I'd like to be even more specific than that. Even more important than devoting a specific amount of time, you have to commit to a solid priority hierarchy. Yeah. Because everybody gets that wrong, unfortunately. And, and here's the, the, the classic example. 
I got this executive who calls me up, is, you know, Angelo, I got a big company. I'm run, I'm, you know, I'm successful in my family and my life and everything I got going. But this one part of my life, my health, my weight or whatever the case is, eludes me. And then the next statement will be, I go to the gym five days a week. And I say, okay, okay, Bobby. Okay, Johnny, what did you eat for lunch yesterday? Or better still, what are you going to eat for lunch tomorrow? And he has no clue. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to have a priority hierarchy. It doesn't mean stop exercising and just live in the kitchen. What it means is let's make a list of four or five things that you can invest whatever amount of time you have into your health, wellness, physique, et cetera. What is the very top of that list? What's the second one on the list? What's the third one on the list? Don't jump down and just be a rock star at items nine and 10 on the list. And boy, I'm just checking those off every day and miss items one and two. Usually that boils down to, you know, the whole abs are made in the kitchen. I know it's cliche, <laughs> but there is a lot of science on, you know, we could talk for hours on sure. that element. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's funny because I just, uh, I got some new coaches and actually the reason I'm working with MetPro is because of that coaching, because I realized exactly what you're saying when it comes to my long-term priorities, nothing works. And by the way, guys, it doesn't have to be MetPro, but, but it is for sure. me. The thing that I needed to realize was that none of these goals that I have go, if I don't go, right. If I don't, which means when you talk about time management for me, you hit it on the nail head with where it is in the priority list. Because, you know, having a budget for next week is great, but I also need a meal plan for next week because otherwise I'm going to make a bad decision. <laughs> like I am going to make a horrible, horrible decision in the moment. Here's a, I'll slip in just one actionable tip. People know that have, that have ever listened to me before. They know I'm really big on snacks. <clears throat> it's not for the reason that you would think. The reason I'm big on snacks is because it's a meal that is not taken socially, which means there's no peer pressure. There's no family pressure. It's just, hey, three o'clock, your alarm goes off. You pull out the desk drawer and you grab an apple and almonds or whatever the snack is. People sometimes make mistakes and not giving enough value to, they pick a snack that's healthy they pick a snack that they like, but they forget two other factors, portability and being not messy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Simple, right? Just little simple things. And that's why I prefer one snack over another. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the nutritional value. It has to do with the practicality. And so those are just the things that with with a little bit of strategy and a little bit of know-how and education, you can learn these tricks of the trade. Well, and I would think then too, because you work with so many busy people, that not messy part and the portability part is huge. I got to be able to, if I'm on the fly, just take something out of my pocket and bam, go. I had a client once who I kept asking, you know, we talked about an afternoon snack and you said you were willing to do it, but I see for the last three days you didn't eat it. And he goes, yeah, I know. I, I love cottage cheese and strawberries, but just by the time I get back to my car at three in the afternoon and it's been 90 degrees outside, it just doesn't taste quite right. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> you might be onto something there. Here's an idea. <laughs> Strategery, strategery. I like it. Angelo, at this pace, we're going to get through all of these questions in about 16 years. But that was <laughs> some, that was, no, that was, I would rather, I think everybody listening would rather get through less and get more 
from it. Uh, fantastic stuff. Thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes. By the way, I'll say this, guys. Angelo has been nice enough to give everybody at Stacking Benjamins, if you want one, a complimentary metabolic profiling assessment and a 30-minute consultation with an expert for free. Go to metpro.co-sb for that. So thanks for that offer. I really appreciate oh, it, Angela. Thank you guys. Absolutely. Well, we'll see you again next month because we're getting into the season of eating and lots and lots of, uh, of bad foods around us. And we're going to want to talk to you just before that, Angela. So we'll see you again next month. That sounds great. Hey, trivia fans. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, here. And all this talk about jobs you love and Herman Melville and Moby Dick. Yeah, it makes me want to buy a boat and just sail away off into the sunset. A boat this nice is going to need a name, though, right? So I thought the SS Cryptocurrency would fit nicely, don't you think? Probably can't see what I did there, but, you know, the C, Cryptocurrency, would be S E. A, anyway, it's brilliant. <laughs> you know, if the wind is right, we could sail away and find tranquility. Where have I heard that before? But, but, but since we're all now dreaming about sailing, take me away. No better tome to dive into than that epic Moby Dick. Here's today's question. Sure, it sold millions of copies, but what is the word count for Herman Melville's Moby Dick? I'll be right back with your answer after the break. All right. So Jen, Jen, we, uh, we explain the rules to this convoluted game to you backstage. We play prices, right? Style. It's the closest without going over. Does that make any sense at all? Yes. Fantastic. Cause we've been playing it for what Paula about uh, nine and a half months now. We still don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm building my confidence. That's why I'm saying, yes, I get it. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, there's good news. And that is that Paula caught up last time and the score is Len has 10 and he called in at the last minute. So he's out to dry. You were officially Jen playing on behalf of OG who now is tied for last, which means you're going to get to choose first if you want to go first or last. But before we get to that, uh, Paula caught up and she now has nine. So it's 10-9-9, Paula. This is exciting. This is a very close game. As, I mean, we're, we're towards the end of the year, actually. I mean, like every game matters in terms of who's the year-end winner. One negative review we had on our about our show is that we manufactured too many laugh moments. We're manufacturing high drama here is what we're really doing. Who cares about laugh moments? Exactly. We're going to see who is the ultimate trivia master. Yes. No pressure, Jen. But oh, I, I'm a trivia master. <laughs> Y'all didn't know? <laughs> there mm -hmm. it is. All right. Uh, you get to choose, Jen. Would you like to guess first or last? I feel pretty confident about this. Let's let's do first. She's going to go first. All right. Yes. Little change yes. of pace there. So what's the word count for Herman Melville's Moby Dick? I wrote a book and my word count was probably about 30,000 words, maybe, give or take. My book probably looks like a page in his book. So I am going to guess somewhere around 300,000 words. 300,000 words. I mm -hmm. I think she just laid down the gauntlet, Paula. Wow. I, I, I expected her to say last, 
but she put it, she put it in a place that probably is, you know, I mean, what's that joke that email Phillips has a book this size will keep a fire burning for hours. Mm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. If rules are closest without going over, then the rational thing to do is to guess one word. Because you think it's less than 300,000 words. Because I think it's less than 300,000. Have you? Uh, uh, the standard, I read somewhere that a standard book, like a typical book that you might find on Amazon, I was about to say at Barnes & Noble, but then I remembered it's not the 1980s. You can check in for flights online these days. No way. Can you buy books online? <laughs> so they sell books online, too. Unbelievable. You can check in for flights online. You can buy books online. But the standard book that you might find online is between uh, 40,000 to 60,000 words. I read that somewhere. Yeah, but to Jen's point, you've seen Moby mm -hmm. Dick. Moby Dick ain't the standard book. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like Moby Dick is somewhere on the level of like Anna Karenina. But still, if a standard book is forty to 60,000, I mean, even if you tripled that, you're at 240,000, right? Even if you tripled the high end of that, you're at 240,000. No, sorry. If you quadrupled it, that's what I meant. Because I know how to multiply. <laughs> if you quadrupled it. Because <laughs> you have a financial podcast and who needs math? <laughs> exactly. Right. I, I The thing I deal with relates to numbers. <laughs> so yeah, at the high end of that range, you quadruple the high end, you're still at 240,000. So I'm going to guess that it's less than 300,000. And in order to protect that guess, then the most rational answer to give is one. What number do you think it is? Mm, um, maybe 120,000. All right. Well, guess what? We're going to do what any self-respecting podcast would do at this point. We're going to make everybody wait. By the way, I like how you make up math. Jen, you make up words. We got yep. we got a bunch of uh, people making stuff up. <laughs> and then Paula's rational with her answers, and I'm just irrational. I'm like, I think this sounds good. I don't know. We'll see. It's a pretty big book. We'll see. Well, if you've heard any of our segments lately about businesses, whether you're thinking about starting a side hustle or you're somebody that's an established business owner, you know that having the right funding for your business, huge key to success. I look at tons of people I've known that have owned businesses over the years and nearly all of them underestimated how long it was going to take to get off the launch pad which also meant how much money it was going to take, how much fuel it was going to take to get the engine running the way you wanted. And even after you're successful, the frustrating thing is when you look at a lot of banks out there, banks are reticent, even with businesses that are a rocket to the moon, they still ask way too many irrelevant questions, put way too many barriers between you and the funding you need to continue to make your business a success. All you have to do is listen to um, the How I Built This podcast. Listen to like five episodes and over and over, all you'll hear is the, same, is the same thing. Well, we talk about it so much here too. It's crazy. So thanks to Cabbage for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Get the money you need to run your small business today. If you go to cabbage.com, you'll get started there because managing inventory, covering payroll, 
doing a hundred other things before lunch. It's just an average day when you own a small businesses. And because your time's valuable, getting the money you need shouldn't take all of it up. And that's why Cabbage created this simple, modern way for businesses to access up to $250,000 of credit. Their application is online. It takes just moments to complete and to get a decision. If your business qualifies, you'll get the capital you need right away, and you can withdraw more funds whenever you need extra capital. Extra capital. I almost said extra cabbage capital with a K. Cabbage has an A-plus rating with a Better Business Bureau. It's provided over 200,000 small businesses access to funding. Get the money you need to run your small business today. Head to cabbage.com to get started. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E.com. Credit line subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank, member FDIC. Jen, you've got 300,000 words. What do you think? I'm pretty confident. Yep. I'm going to stick to it. Yep. Fantastic. And Paula, you've got one word. I, I bet mm-hmm. you're fairly certain that's not the answer. <laughs> I'm fairly certain that that's not the answer. But if the rules are closest to that going over and there are only two contestants, then that is the uh, that's the game theory answer. Well, let's see. This is a monster book. So, Doug, what's our answer? Darcy blows trivia nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And, you know, after reading paragraph one of Moby Dick, I'm feeling pretty confident about reading epics. I mean, the first paragraph of this juggernaut had to have at least like four words. And I mastered it. I crushed it. I'm so good at those four words. But there are a lot more words to go. And the question today was just how many? Well, in total, Moby Dick's word count is 206 thousand and 52 words two wait 206,052 words holy cow that's a whale of a book literally see ya stay fresh cheese bags what see i should have been more rational like paula (laughs) (laughs) if paula would have gone first it sounds like she would have gone 240,000 I probably should have listened to her first and her rationale. And then that should have been my strategy. Well, that's a lesson for next time. I was actually thinking about it. And if I had gone first, I would have thrown out an answer without giving the rationale because the rationale relates to the, the fact that I'd, you know, the, the factoid of 40,000 to 60,000 in a, a standard book. And that wouldn't be information that I would want to give to other contestants. So had I guessed first, I would have guessed 80,000 and I would not have stated any reason. Oh. I would have tabled the reasoning. But Jen was thinking 300,000. So Jen might have then said 81. She might have Chelsea Brennan you then. I would, Ooh, no, I yeah. still would have gone over. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if I would have said 300, but I think I would have You're- gone over. But just because my book is small in comparison. Yeah. That was my rationale. You're too nice, Jen, to Chelsea Brennan people. <laughs> she is she is way too nice to do that to somebody. Let's take out the magnifying glass, ladies, and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnifymoney.com. When you head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, you know what you find, Jen? I, I an issue to a problem. <laughs> you, you find, that's exactly right. That's pretty good. I, I wasn't expecting that. But you find those, fina- those financial products you use every day 
from your brick and mortar bank are nowhere near the best in class. That's what you find. You find an answer to a problem. Over 92% of the products available online all ranked at Magnify Money, whether it is paying less interest to the man, less uh, interest in credit card debt, getting a checking account that has lower fees, hopefully no fee, and then uh, savings accounts that actually pay some interest, all that and more at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money. And today we're helping Pat magnify his money. Say hi, Pat. Hey, Doug, this is Pat from Texas. Just a quick call to thank you for your great trivia. So I was listening the other day to that dead space between your trivia question and answer and and discovered apparently you fill that dead air with some other guys droning on about fire, retirement planning, investment, or some other yik-yak. Anywho, this made me think of a question I've had and hoping that you or those other yahoos can answer it. So my question is about retaining a financial advisor. I hear a lot of talk on podcasts about how to select an advisor, and it's great discussion, but it seems to me that finding an advisor is only part of the question. So let's assume I did my research, found an advisor that works well for me today, you know, fee-based, acts as a fiduciary, yada, yada, yada. Clearly, the role this guy is going to play in the rest of my life is crucial. I'm asking him to manage a lot of money. So with that in mind, how do I know he's doing a good job over time? How do I measure his performance five years from now, 10 years from now? So it it can't be financial performance, at least not that alone, because I'm expecting him to guide me through good times and bad. But it seems like there should be some way to ensure that my advisor remains engaged and hasn't lost passion for what I need done. Is it quality and frequency of communications with me or something else? Anyway, aside from your trivia questions, I fully expect that Absolutely nothing you or those other two time filler financial guys tell me will be retained. <laughs> and then he just hangs up. I don't up. feel any pressure. So that's good. <laughs> well, the good news is you're not uh, me and OG, who I think is who he's ripping here. Not not you two. Which is why we'd like you to answer this question instead. So, uh, Jen, you're the guest. Uh, what do you think? How do you measure the whether a financial advisor is doing the job for you or not? For me, I would measure it if he, besides, uh, yes, uh, keeping in touch with you, but really every once in a while checking in and seeing if you had any life changes. Because if there's been any life changes that involves tweaking that financial plan, I think that's very important. And then just keeping you updated on any changes fees, all that good stuff when it, you know, when it comes to investing, I think that is really critical. When you talk about tweaking the plan though, what if, what if the advisor's not good at what they do? I mean, how do you, how do you keep up with that? What if the advice you got wasn't that phenomenal? Then you find another, find another <laughs> advisor. If they're not calling you, cause they should be checking in and taking, you know, that temperature about life changes. If they're not, you definitely need to find a new advisor. Paula? The biggest thing that I would look for is in the conversations that you have with this person, do they help you think strategically and think creatively about whatever is on your plate right now. So when you have that conversation with them, when you when you check in for a quarterly meeting or a biannual meeting or however often you meet, as you're looking at the document that has your net worth, as you're looking at that spreadsheet or however it is that you capture your net worth, and you're asking the question, what next? Where do I go from here? Do they introduce ideas, frameworks, new ways of thinking that expand and enhance your ability to think strategically about the chess pieces that are on the board. If they do, 
then they're providing that mentorship and that strategic thinking and planning that is hard to quantify, but incredibly valuable. They are an extra brain looking at the same problem set uh, and a well-qualified one at that. If they're not doing that, though, if they're just kind of going through the motions or telling you the same things that you've already thought of, then I would argue that you're not getting any value because why would you pay for somebody who's just reiterating the thoughts that you yourself already have been able to develop independently? I agree. And I think also because if they're just calling or checking in or at the meetings and they're just kind of checking off a checklist for and not giving any value, then definitely <laughs> that's not very helpful, is it? No, no, not at all. I'm thinking, um, I'm also thinking, and I, and Pat, I agree with what you kind of stated in your question that if your advisor is just an investment picker, you can very safely fire them. You can very safely let them go because that's not what modern, in my opinion, modern financial advice is all about. It's much more what, uh, both Paul and Jen are talking about here, which is looking at you holistically and where are your blind spots and if they're consistently questioning where your blind spots are and helping you navigate those, then I think that's great. Now, that doesn't get them off the hook for investments. And a good financial planner will have something that we call an investment policy statement. And as part of that investment policy statement, we refer to it as IPS. So if I jump into jargon here and I say IPS, that's what I'm talking about. But if their policy statement is really thorough... It will come with a benchmark that's custom made based on not the S&P 500 because my investment beats the S&P 500 is garbage. Also, because the best, that has nothing to do with your goals or it beats the NASDAQ mm -hmm. or whatever. But they can put together from modern portfolio theory, they can put together a rate of return you need to keep up with over long periods of time to meet your goal. And once again, using modern portfolio theory, they can also plot a spot where they can create kind of a hybrid benchmark to meet that goal, which is historically the least risk, highest return to get you there. And once they have that spot, a lot of advisors will then compare your portfolio to that benchmark. So now you have a benchmark that's much closer to what you're trying to do instead of this baloney I read about on the internet all the time. So you can do that if you're worried about the investment part of it. Obviously, I agree with both uh, Jen and Paula that there's so much more to it. Uh, that's just a small part. I mean, really, they should be helping you with your taxes. If you get your open enrollment every year, walking through your open enrollment options with you, if you've got a whole cafeteria plan of things to choose from, tax law changes, like Jen mentioned earlier, working on your budget. I mean, whatever those whatever those blind spots might be, they should be helping with that. I feel like, Jen, too many people think of a financial advisor as an investment manager and that's about it. True. That's pretty much. And of course, I'm not a financial advisor, but that's what I see when I'm misinterpreted to be one. Uh, and financial advisors can do more. Granted, they don't have, they can choose what their skill sets are and be very clear and, uh, and honest about it because that way you can choose a financial advisor that maybe will help you because some financial advisors helps you help you with your budget and all those more, um, financial skills or, or more uh, simple financial or basic financial skills. But, uh, yeah, it's, 
not all financial advisors will do all those things. You just have to, when you interview them, you really need to uh, be aware of what their skill sets are and what they're bringing to the table besides the investment knowledge. And that distinction, Paul, is why I get frustrated uh, with, uh, with people online just talking about, well, ask what they charge and how they're charged. But I think if you don't know what they do, if, if what they do isn't a fit, who the hell cares what they charge? Yeah, that actually reminds me of an Oscar Wilde quote that a cynic is the man who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. So if your first question out of the gate is, what do you charge? And the question is not, what is your value? Well, that says something. I'm going to steal that. I am totally stealing that because I am so tired of uh, saying that and quoting myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I quote from this genius I heard who hosts the best podcast in the world. Yes. And I quote from Paula, who's quoting Oscar Wilde. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for the question, Pat. And by the way, thanks for bringing it. Nice job with the question. Uh, By the way, in our Facebook group, we now, mom has this competition for a little something, something. And I think Pat just laid down the gauntlet for people this week. It's fun. What mom sends people is pretty hilarious, but I can't tell you. If you want to find out, you got to leave us a message. How about that? Uh, head, head Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail and we can answer your question too. Well, that's going to do it for today. Let's start with our guest of honor, Jen. It's about time we got you here hanging out with us. Well, I'm excited and uh, it's been so much fun so far. Your podcast is talked about on on what's the, there is a super huge podcast. Not that your podcast isn't super huge, but these people are even in the finance business and they, they talk about your podcast all the time. What's it? Is it my perfect murder? My favorite murder. My favorite murder. Podcast talking about mentioning money. Yes. yes. Interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. True crime podcast, huge fans. Uh, but tell everybody about Her Dinero Matters because you have this super unique way of talking about money. Well, thank you. So I used to have uh, Her Money Matters and I've recently changed and shifted to Her Dinero Matters, which is we're talking about the same things, but the focus is more from, it's more Latina centric. So of course, how we do money and how we manage money doesn't change no matter the culture, gender, anything. Um, But it's really coming, it's more about the money stories and the money stories obviously brings culture and those type of things. So we talk a lot about our money stories and really reflect on how that impacts how we think about money today, which can help us uh, shift how we manage our money because how we think about money really impacts how we manage our money. So we have those a lot of money stories uh, with our guests. I still do some solo episodes once a month. And at the end of the month, one thing that I recently implemented is a panel. So I called it the Reina panel because really the mission with my podcast is to help women become reinas or queens of their money. That's so awesome. That's really cool. Uh, what's What topics are you covering coming up on the show? This month, we are covering of no spend challenges, really creative ways of saving. And then up next, we will be talking about Latina Equal Payday is in uh, November. Uh, So we'll be talking about more of that uh, in November. Awesome. And you can find that wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Yes. 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 <laughs> I didn't know that was a question. I no, it, was it, what you, were you know what? It really wasn't, but it's like, it always feels like my second day podcasting here. 
Uh, the other thing, but I also owe you a thank you too. You have helped so many of our listeners speak Spanish by those popular phrases with our friends Jonathan from Choose FI and Matt from How to Money. So nice job there too. Well, thank you. Gracias. They're fluent too. <laughs> like it took one phrase and están hablando bastante. They uh, they are still. I have no idea. Yes, correct. Uh, <laughs> Paula, Paula, what's what's going on at Afford Anything? On the Afford Anything podcast, we ran an interview with behavioral economist Kristen Berman. She works with Dan Ariely in a lab called Irrational Labs. They they are the co-founders of this lab. And they study why we act the way we do with our money, particularly when the way in which we act makes no sense. We also have Noah Kagan on the podcast. He is an entrepreneur who talks about how he started his own business and grew it to eight figures in revenue. So he uh, he's a very, very successful entrepreneur, and he talks about it's, – it's really more of a fireside chat than it is an interview. We recorded it live in person in Austin, and he gets very real about not just business management but also the emotional management that comes along with starting – taking from zero to eight figures. Noah Kagan, I wish that guy had an opinion about something. <laughs> yes, Noah is uh, – not afraid to speak his mind. Not at all. Yes. He's very bashful. No, not, <laughs> not in the least. Such a cool guy. And uh, I think intense, like on a scale of one to 10, when I interviewed uh, Noah for the FinCon podcast, I put him at about a 14. Yeah. Noah has a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy. He's uh, just, I'm thrilled to have him as a podcast guest. Yeah. That's so cool. That's going to do it for today, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks to everybody who's left us a review of the podcast. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, first take some advice from our roundtable team. While finding work you love is important, finding a life you love is even better. Probably better by a mile. Second, take some advice from Angelo and take care of yourself. A healthy body and mind lead to a healthy bank account. But the big lesson... Don't forget to take your boat off the trailer for its maiden voyage. Like my cousin Ernest, his boat named Unsinkable 2. Don't even ask about what happened to Unsinkable 1. Unsinkable 2 is now lying at the bottom of Lake Michigan. Guess if that happened to the cryptocurrency, that'd be an ironic outcome, huh? Rough seas ahead for cryptos, mateys. Special thanks to Jen Hemphill for coming down to the basement. You can find more about her show, Her Dinero Matters, on our show notes page or jenhemphill.com. Thanks to Angelo Poli for stopping by and telling us to get out of the basement and go running every once in a while. And to get our health in order. For your start to healthy living, head to metpro.co forward slash sb. Paula Pant appears courtesy of AffordAnything.com and the Afford Anything Podcast. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I swear the worst part about coming over to Joe's mom's house is having to put on pants. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Lastly, thanks to Joe's mom for her gently used copy of Sailing for Dummies and one penny to go toward the down payment of a real boat. SS Cryptocurrency, here we come, baby. Sailing takes me away where I want. God, that's a good song. Welcome to the after show. Jen, this is the part of the show that doesn't exist. So we don't, we don't talk about this at all. Right. <laughs> of course not. We'll stay quiet. It does, does not happen. I found this piece of weird news at uh, HuffPost. Guinea pig ice cream becoming a cool new treat in Ecuador. This piece says it's a real ice cream flavor. Guinea pig. Anyone who thinks of guinea pigs as pets, cute, squishy, squeaking bundles of fur might find that idea hard to digest. The rodents are a traditional hot dish in some of Latin American countries, including Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia. In Ecuador, people typically cook guinea pigs with salt and serve them with potatoes and peanut sauce. But one vendor is taking things to another gastronomic level, serving guinea pigs as a cold dessert. Some people like ice cream made from koi, as the animals locally known. I was suspicious, but it was tasty, said Marlene Franco, a 78-year-old retiree who tried to scoop at a stall next to a highway linking the Ecuadorian capital of Quito to the city of Sangolki. The stall owner is, uh, oh boy. <laughs> uh, the stall owner is Maria del Carmen Pilapeña. Pilapeña, whose offbeat inspiring inspires disbelief and laughter among first-time customers. Her operation's small. It consists of two tables in an open area lined with dentist clinics and other businesses. Even so, demand's growing. Every week, the entrepreneur prepares 150 servings of guinea pig ice cream. Makes me wonder. Well, first, Jen, your family is in Colombia, correct? Yeah, I have some family in Colombia. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So if you had this delicacy known as guinea pig. Yes, el cuy, yes. But not even in Colombia. I had it when we were living in Peru and in Juan Cayo, we were with some friends just vacationing and they grilled it. And literally they served the whole, like they didn't just cut it up, you know, like you uh, cut up some turkey. They literally served the guinea pig or the cuy, as they say. And my, I have a picture of my husband with opening up his mouth. Uh, he hasn't cut it up now. He's opened it and taken a bite of this whole size cooey or guinea pig. So it's the funniest thing. So wait a minute. You're saying the whole thing is like on a spit or something? Yes. Just like when they you grill fish yeah. and the, the whole fish is on there minus the eye and stuff. It's literally the, the guinea pig. Wow. They serve it to you. Yep. Wow. But ice cream? 
That makes my stomach uh, sick, actually. <laughs> uh, I've tried various things, but if I had to have you, I know I'm derailing this, but you've heard of, I think I've talked to you about this coffee beans that they make from oh, bird poop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there's also one that's like weasel poop, right? Oh, I, I think so. So if I had to choose between this ice cream out of Kui, made out of Kui, or the beans, I would choose the, this ice cream. Like, would, you, would you really? If I that was my only choices, that's that's what I would choose. But I, it does make, I mean, just thinking about it, it makes my stomach really queasy. I have heard that that coffee's phenomenal, though. Mm, no, just even thinking of what it's made of. Nope. Paula, have you? It. I love coffee. Have you had that? So I don't I, even remember the name of the, the coffee, but have you had yes. it? Yes. So it's the weasel poop coffee. It's actually Asian civets, C-I-V-E-T-S. I know all about this. I, I haven't tried it, but I know a lot about it because I wrote an article about it. Back in, I think, 2009, I published an article about it as a freelance assignment for Specialty Coffee Retailer Magazine, which is like an industry publication for people inside of the coffee industry. So I wrote this article from Vietnam about a Asian civet coffee, which is yeah. essentially coffee where these civets like eat the coffee bean, they digest it, they excrete it, and then somebody digs through that excrement, pulls out the beans, washes it really well. That's actually that's actually mm -hmm. where I first heard about it was when I was in Vietnam. Uh, I thought you were going to say it was when I was reading Specialty Coffee Retail yes. Magazine. <laughs> you wrote my favorite article. <laughs> That's what I thought he was going for, too. <laughs> so, no, I have not tried it. But after researching and writing an entire article about it, I'm very excited to try it now. So clearly another trip to Vietnam is in my future at some point. Oh, let's go right now. I'm I am ready to go to Southeast Asia right now. So you've been to Ecuador, though. Mm -hmm. Jen has seen guinea pig on a spit. What about you? I have uh, been to Ecuador at the Chautauqua events, which are these financial independence workshops. I've been a speaker there for four times. So I've been to Ecuador for four years. This year is going to make my fifth. And That's good that you know that math. Nice work. <laughs> if you take four and you add one to it, you get 41. <laughs> so on at least one of those trips, we did eat goi. So I have eaten guinea pig. It was kind of, I don't know, what's the word? I want to say meaty, but like, you know, when something is... Sinewy? Um, gamey? Gamey, that's it. It was, yeah, it was kind of gamey. So I, I was not a fan of it. I tried it once, and I think I don't need to try it again. Did your husband think the same when he had it, Jen? I'd have to ask him again. I mean, he was just proud he did it because he was like, oh, take this picture. <laughs> Because no one's going to believe, especially his mom and his grandmother. But I didn't, I mean, it was all right. There's some meats that I'm just like, eh. And this was one that I would go, eh. Yeah. Might not taste like chicken. No, it doesn't taste like chicken. Maybe not. Even the consistency or the texture, and I don't know if the texture, but it was, I don't know if it was a little too chewy or I don't know. I, I, what would the slogan be if you're going to eat guinea pig? I'm like, guinea pigs, not just for. Guinea pigs, try it. <laughs> <laughs> well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, 
who is such a giving person, Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.